You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Now we all know that Sportiva makes the best climbing shoes this side of the Parthenon. But it turns out that even the most dedicated dirtbags have to spend an ungodly amount of time on the flats among the sad, lost, lowland civilians. And that's where Sportiva's approach shoes come in. Legends like the Boulder X can comfortably scramble you up slabs, boulders, easy pitches until the big guns come out. And for when you're not actually in the mountains, well, as you peruse the hemp milk selection at the whole paycheck, nothing says I've climbed El Cap, like a brightly colored pair of TX3s that are relentlessly scuffing the floor. Bellied up to the bar for that post-near-death experience beer, let them know those gobies didn't come from labor with a pair of impossibly lightweight TX2s. After all, isn't the day-to-day drudgery just a protracted scramble to the next climb? Whether you're actually at the cliff or just standing up in your best friend's wedding, you better be ready in a pair of multi-sport approach shoes from Sportiva. Does your partner suffer from try-it-again syndrome? Or one-hangitis? Or even worse, delusional performance disorder? Well, there really isn't a cure for DPD, except for a good smackdown. But it does probably mean that you've been belaying them for hours and hours on end and are now suffering from BNP, or belayer neck pain a stiffness in the cervical spine just below the occipital region of your thick, thick skull. But now there's a cure for BMP resulting from DPD. Ask your doctor about belay specs. And when he doesn't know what the hell you're talking about, just smile and tuck that prescription for opiates away for your next overseas plane flight. But then ask several strangers about belay specs. Ask that cute barista at the coffee shop on the corner about belay specs. In fact, ask everyone you know about belay specs. Keep talking about belay specs until nobody wants to climb with you anyway. Problem solved. But if that doesn't work, then go to belayspecs.com and get yourself a pair. And don't forget to enter EnormaCast at checkout for a discount and to help out the podcast. Side effects may include people thinking you're staring at them when you're not. Old track climbers rolling their eyes. People putting them on for the first time saying, ooh, that's trippy. People insisting they don't like those weird glasses even though they've never even tried them. If you feel drowsy, nauseous, rumbling in your stomach, horny, confused, or have strange, vivid dreams, this probably has nothing to do with belay specs. And is more likely from that bug you picked up in that backpacker's hostel in Rio after far too many caipirinhas. Belayspecs.com. Say adeus to belayer neck pain. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... Enormo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place, that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. Oh, you oh, really God. should. What the hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Kloos. It is July 30th, 2018, about 10.30 here in Colorado, Carbondale, Colorado, the world headquarters of the EnormaCast. This is episode 155 of the podcast, an interview with Dean Fidelman. And this one is hot off the presses. I just talked to Dean at the end of the trade show. I'm not actually at OR trade show last week in Denver, but... Got a message from him that he was in Boulder, and we'd been trying to get it done for at least a year or so when he was here in Colorado last time, and I missed him. So I basically just uh, dropped everything and headed up to Boulder to sit down with Dean in Lynn Hill's office. How cool is that? I'm in Lynn Hill's office interviewing Dean Fidelman, talking about the Stone Masters quite a bit in this one. And as many of you probably know, Lynn was a stone master of sorts. I don't know if she actually identifies herself as a stone master. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't, but she was around. And the cool thing is, is that uh, Dean brought his A-game. He actually is a fan of the show and is uh, an admirer of what we do here at the Enorma cast. And as an artist, I think he 
bears all a lot in his work, and he decided to come with his A-game to the Enormacast, and I'm very excited to put this one out, and I'm going to actually put it out in two parts, which I'll talk about in a minute. But yeah, Dean got down and dirty with talking about the history of the Stone Masters. He was a Stone Master. He was also very much part of the Stone Monkeys, the latter-day kind of version of the Stone Masters in the 90s and early aughts. And in between, we talk about art, we talk about love, we talk about life, we talk about death. It's quite a far-reaching and far-ranging conversation with Dean, who's seen a lot. He's been a dirtbag of sorts and a Yosemite denizen for, shit, going on 40 years now. He's been hanging out and collecting photos of the scene there in Yosemite, and then his research in his books you know, have brought him back to even, even earlier days, going back all the way to the 50s. But the reason I wanted to jump on this and get this one out is because Dean's got a Kickstarter. One of the more infamous things he is known for are the Stone Nude calendars, which uh, have come around and come out for 20 years now. It's coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Stone Nudes calendars, and he's got a Kickstarter where you can basically simply pre-order your calendar. There's all sorts of levels of donations, but that's kind of the most basic one. You know, he can make sure that there's enough orders to warrant putting the time and money into this thing. Uh, but there's some higher level donations and to get some prints, some signed prints, some signed portfolios and things like that. So so if you're interested in supporting Dean, supporting art like what he does, and if you're interested in that calendar, check it out over at the kickstarter.com. I will put the link with this post. Uh, you can just go to Kickstarter and search Stone Nudes and figure out where it is. And Dean is actually not looking for very much money to get this thing done and get it out there. But as you'll hear in the interview, he, not unlike the royal we here at the Enormacast, is sort of allergic to making money. And uh, I would love to see that Kickstarter actually blow the lid off of it and maybe Dean would actually feel okay about paying himself a little bit for doing this work that he does. So head over there and uh, see if you can find a way to support Dean in this particular endeavor um, and keep him stoked to keep doing this kind of stuff because this will be the last Stone Nudes calendar also, 20th and done. He's moving on to different stuff, but he's got a lot of ideas for other projects. So hook a brother up. Okay, and finally, I'm going to cut this one in half. We actually talked for about an hour, 40 minutes which would be a long single episode, even for the Enormacast, which we can go on. Um, and there's a good, good cutting point in the middle. We talk a lot in the first half about the Stone Masters and that whole scene and Dean's coming up as a photographer. And then the second half is a lot more personal, I think. And we get to the Stone Monkeys, but also a lot more about life and how he came about doing his own projects after moving on from the Stone Master group and what he was looking for in life. So... I'm also going to put these out pretty close to back-to-back. I'm going to try to put the next one out just in a couple days. So they'll be sitting there as a two-part series you can listen to all at once or you know split them apart, however you want to do it. And I think I need to make up an episode from back in February to hit my 24-a-year mark. I think I missed one. I can't really remember. Um, so I do plan on putting out two more in August anyway. So there'll be a whole pile of Enormacast for you to delve into. Okay, that's it. Let's get it done. I think we did important work here, and I hope you guys enjoy it. You know, it'd be great if we could all climb free and naked as wee little spider monkeys, leaping and bounding up rocks with nothing but our birthday suits and belief. But we can't, can we? At least not in mixed company. So when it's time to gear up and protect your sensitive bits on the next adventure, please consider that Black Diamond Equipment has been supporting the Enormacast for six years, nearly from its inception. BD had faith in the project as soon as they got wind of its enormous stature, and they've been helping melt the cheese on the delicious ear burger that is the Enormacast ever since. So please consider that next time you open your wallet for a spanky new piece of gear. Black Diamond, proud sponsor of the Enormacast. really great to be here and thanks for making oh, yeah. this happen because we tried uh you were here a little while ago yeah yeah 
last you know, year, I think. I do this like face to face rule, and it's it's I tricky sometimes. Yeah, yeah, but it's the best way. I feel like it's that's working. how I work. Yeah, you know, and we were just exactly talking it. about yeah, that. Yeah, we were so. talking about that, um, and, and uh, so yeah, let's start with that then. I mean, I want to get into your creative process and okay. um, as an artist in climbing. In my I, I started my very beginning really briefly, which was um, uh, when I was fourteen years old. Uh, living in the San Fernando Valley in California. I took a high school photography class and the, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, the teacher, uh, Warren Shelton was an old time Sierra clubber who had climbed out of talk eats and, uh, probably Joshua tree and maybe you me a little bit, but he, uh, bouldered a little bit out of Stony point, which was about 10 miles away from where I lived in the San Fernando Valley. So one of the special assignments you could pick was to take photographs of the climbers at Stony Point. And so I, I chose that one and I rode my bike, uh, the 10 miles from my house, which is very close to the school, got out there with my camera and was later in the afternoon. And I remember there was a girl bouldering a woman, probably, uh, she must've been about 18 or 19. And, uh, I thought truly I did think, she would look amazing nude. And I had never really seen a nude woman in person at this point in my life, mind you. Uh, I maybe had seen a couple photographs, I'm certain. But uh, I think I ended up taking a photograph of her and I put that in for the extra assignment or extra credit assignment. And uh, I, the next year I was into advanced photography. But I began going out to Stony Point, mostly to find that girl, because I had chatted, chatted her up as a 14 year old, maybe 15 year old <laughs> Wait, at this point. I don't, did you say what year this was about? This would have been 1971, okay. 1972 that time. Right. I think so you're shooting, you're shooting with what? I had a, uh, sorry, I, I interrupted the I, flow. No, there, that's but, fine. No, yeah. I had a Minolta. Okay. SR 101. Okay. Which I'd gotten by mowing lawns for the summer. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. So you're back out at, uh, at Stony Point. And so I back out at Stony Looking Point. Looking for your lady friend. Sort of like your muse. stalking this muse. Looking for your yeah. muse. <laughs> and, uh, and she had a boyfriend, which, you know, kind of bummed me out, but, um, but he was cool and they showed me how to boulder. And mm -hmm. so I continued going out there and I got better and better and met more and more people. And, um, it's cool that there was a bouldering scene in 1971 there was. at Stony Point. There was. And I mean, that's actually, like early bouldering scene. <laughs> yeah. And when I made the fifties book, mm -hmm. I actually have photos of Royal Robbins bouldering and climbing at Stony Point mm -hmm. in like 1951 right. when he was like 13 or 14 years old. So that history went all the way back, probably even further. But, um, so at, at this point, um, I'd met this guy named Sean Curtis and he, uh, was probably a year older, had a driver's license and his uh, father was a doctor. He lived in Encino and he had money in a car and he climbed at a Joshua tree and I had only heard of such a place. So one day we got into the car and Sean was also a photographer as well, a really good one. And, uh, and I'll get to that point later, but, uh, we drove out to Josh tree and on the way out to Josh tree, I'm 15 years old. And on the way out to Josh tree, I had my first experience with marijuana <laughs> and uh, it was amazing. And we got high and then we get out to, uh, Josh tree right around sunset. And these guys decided they were, we we're going to do, uh, um, a mass ascent of Mike's books. And I had never done anything besides bouldering and I had no idea. And it was sunset and we, we all climbed up this thing it was five, five and it was really fun. I remember it was just the greatest time we got to the top and then we drank some wine and I'd never drank wine before. So now I'm drunk and stoned on top and it's dark and we're stumbling down these chimneys and we get to this place. Where we have to make a repel. And I remember I repelled down right into the what is that? The water crack and my feet got stuck and it was th the most adventurous, funnest time of my life. I think, you know, to start those adventures. And that's where I got addicted. I think the places and adventure like that. And, uh, because, you know, I'm experiencing, experiencing everything. I'm drunk, I'm stoned, right. I'm climbing, I'm, I'm stuck. You're with some older kids. I'm with some older kids. They're being cool to you. Yeah, and they're being right. really cool. Right. <laughs> and they know about climbing with ropes. And wow, this is, you know, and I'm probably going to meet a chick soon. Right, any minute. Any second here, right? <laughs> so um, I think that weekend I made a lot of photos as well. And Sean made photos. And he, you know, had a dark room at home because, you know, the, his father was into photography as well. And he invited me to that place and uh, kind of mentored me as, as we started making these photographs. And then I... Uh, 
was in Yosemite the, the next summer, like it would have been 72 or 73, 72. I think uh, I hitchhiked there and I had like 50 bucks. And uh, I met like um, John Yablonski and a few other people. And I think I met Tobin Sorensen and Mike Graham. And they were Southern California climbers talking suicide. And I had been to those places. And uh, we, we got along. And so they said, hey, wait, you're down in Talk Eats, you know, look us up. And so they were the original Stone Masters along with John Long, who had I already read some of his stuff. He had been writing. He was about a year earlier than us or two years earlier than me. And so I got down there. And uh, right around that time, also, I met John Backer mm-hmm. out at, at, at um, Stony Point. And he was a middle class kid like me. So there wasn't a lot of money, but he had a car, an old Corvair piece of shit, 1960. You know, like unsafe at any speed. Right, that and, was that car, right? Yeah, that was that, that car that movie, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. That, that it was a wonderful car. And uh, <laughs> I met him out at Stony Point, and I, you know, already been climbing with with uh, the Stone Masters for about a year, you know, and uh, but I hadn't done Valhalla yet, and and that was kind of the entrance exam to it. So anyway, I met Backer, and um, I said, let's go climbing. And he had never really been doing that much rope climbing. And I took him out to Joshua Tree, or he had a car. So I needed a car. I had a bicycle. It wasn't going to work. Uh, <laughs> so we got in the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We drove out to Joshua Tree. And, uh, and I saw John Long, who I'd met like, you know, a few months earlier in Tobin and those guys. And I said, hey, this is my friend John Backer. He climbs well because he was bouldering really hard at Stony Point. That's what caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Very aesthetic, very hard. I think I took some photographs. Because, you know, I was still taking photographs of the climbers out of Stony Point. That was kind of my thing. It, 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 it gave it, Making photographs brings me joy. Mm-hmm. That's all I can say. Climbing brings me joy. I don't climb very hard, but I climb so I'm happy. And, and so it's always been that way. And being with my friends has always brought me joy. So Backer was quickly absorbed into that group. And I think within a month or so, me, Backer, and Tobin Sorensen went and did one of the earlier ascents of Valhalla. And so we were kind of in the club. Mm-hmm. And we were going to be climbing with those guys. And then I think I did it again with Tobin and Eric Erickson about a month later. And so everything was kind of fleshing out and moving into this kind of mass, because critical mass. Because what was going on with John Long was he was, you know, this energy, this ball of energy. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, into philosophy, into writing. And he was kind of aware that there was this, movement going on and he'd climbed with bridwell like a couple summers earlier so he knew what was going on into yosemite and, and john was the alpha uh, among these alphas mm-hmm. and we followed his lead and we acted like he acted and we we adopted a lot of things from him because he was fucking cool for us oh know? yeah <laughs> and uh and so we became that group of stone masters we called ourselves stone masters and we and in 1973 we kind of all started to migrate into the valley because earlier, what we do is in the winter, we'd be in, in Joshua Tree. Then in the spring, we go to Talk Eats. And then in the summer, we decided we we're going to go to Yosemite into the fall. And we repeat the process. And so we got to Yosemite. And at that time, Bridwell, who was King of Sar, was mentoring um, Ron Kalk and um, John Yablonski and Kevin Worrell and Mark Chapman and, you know, a number of others. And then we showed up right at the same time. So, bang, you have this critical mass of really good, young, hot climbers, right, that are way into being cool because that's what's going on around us is coolness. And um, it's that critical mass had been reached. And all these climbs are waiting to be done free. As if they were aid climbs, they were waiting to be done free. Mm-hmm. And if they were undone, they were waiting to get done. And... John Long had an eye for that, had been doing that with Rick Yakamazo and those guys, all of us out in Joshua Tree and Ataki Eats Suicide. We were doing that stuff. We were trying to surpass the generation that came before us immediately because they had authored those roots. There, mm-hmm. there they were. They were written. We knew what they were. Did those roots, dispatched them quickly, in fact. Went on to the next route. So, and the same thing was going on with that crew up in Northern California, the Bridwell crew. Those guys were dispatching routes. So, when we got together, and Bridwell had this eye for partnering people up, and he like partnered Calc up with Backer and, you know, Graham up with this guy because Graham was more technical climbing walls. And Mike Graham was way into designing and inventing stuff, even, you know, at 18, 19 years old. He was fabricating sliding nuts and working on ideas for portal edges, even then. Mm-hmm. And Bridwell saw that and long understood that. Now, it's 
Graham of Gramici. Yeah, of, right. of Gramici products. And the right. thing is... Because that was his nickname, right? Yeah, like, we Anna called him Gramici. So all, at Anna one point, Comici, we all had yeah. nicknames within right, the group. Right. I was, of course, Bullwinkle. Right. Um, and Mike Graham, we, he, he was named after Emilio Camici. Right, the, the Italian. The yeah. Italian who died in the 30s in a top-roping accident at a bouldering place. What? Yeah, who knows but what happened exactly. Wow. Sounds right. like somebody was like drinking wine and let go of the rope. Right. Um, but other than that, he was famous, stole my climber. Yeah, he like, had the, and the thing was he had style. Yeah. He was style. Right. He had the, the photograph where he's in the knickers mm-hmm. with the like the white with no shirt. Right. And the rope around his waist and he's jamming something, right? Mm-hmm. And Mike Graham, you know, he's like, Yeah, we're all about style then. Mm-hmm. And this was the time of Dogtown and Z Boys and white painter pants and headbands and long hair and, and, and thrift store shirts and that kind of stuff. It was about the style and how you looked part of that time. So right? that that skater style was was influencing it was you surf, guys. Skate, surf, skate, climb. Yeah, the, it was all okay. that same kind of influence right. was okay. going on. But we wanted to climb with style. And the reason why we could climb with style was because shit, you know, the, the level was 5'11", 5'10", right? Mm-hmm. And we were strong, young bucks. Right. Any strong, young buck could climb 5'10". And we knew we could. And after a while, since there's no, the ceiling is low here, right? And you're, you're climbing it as well as you can, mm-hmm. spacing out gear, hanging on the holes, kicking your feet loose, starting the solo stuff, getting it out there because it's not out there to you. You've mm-hmm. got more than enough strength for 510 b Right. No worries, right? These days, the level is so much higher and the climbers are so much higher. But we were climbing at the level, at the top levels. And so when we all got to Yosemite, we had that critical mass, I think, in like 70, uh, 73. And... Um, we all would in the fall would go back home and climb and you know the southern california climbers would climb together and the northern guys would do their thing and uh i was taking photographs all along and i was kind of aware that others were taking photographs too Mm -hmm. and they were my friends and i would show my photographs and sometimes i would see the other photographs but more likely than not i never saw what came out of anyone else's camera but i was very much aware that people were making photographs Mm -hmm. And this is a reference later on in the Stonemaster book. But um, so by 1975, we were fully formed. And, you know, we were, they called us the 16 and mean. I think I was maybe 17, but whatever. We were, <laughs> you know, I'd gotten out of school. I had graduated from high school early <laughs> at 16 and a half. And, uh, and we would go up to Yosemite and we were like all on SAR because we were Bridwell's boys. Right. And, uh, and the waitresses at the, at the lodge at the Four Seasons restaurant, there was a restaurant there, were all young girls, young women, mm-hmm. that loved us. And they lived, you know, over by the dorms. And you, you would come up there in the spring, you would get a girlfriend, and you'd be on SAR, and you'd hang with your girlfriend, and you'd hang with your SAR guys. But the, your girlfriends would all know each other, and everybody would live close to each other. And then every Wednesday, they would have a barbecue for all their boyfriends, who were all your Stonemaster buddies. Right. And they would have a big spaghetti feast, because we had no money. Right. There was nothing, but back then, for uh, like for a dollar, man, you can get four cans of tuna fish, mm-hmm. dude. Yeah, that'll sustain you. A lot you. of pr- protein, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of protein, <laughs> and for like, and for another buck, you can get four things of macaroni and, and cheese, right? right? So I think you got tuna mac there. Yeah, for sure. And that worked, right? Especially in like a, a nice young eighteen-year-old body, mm-hmm. <laughs> keep you skinny enough to climb. And we were all skinny. All the ribs showed. We were working out. And, uh, and, and, and roots started falling, you know, and, and, um, in 75, the nose goes in a day mm-hmm. with, with Bridwell and Long and West Bay and their hands were directly tied to our hands, you know, and then, um, Astro Man with, uh, Cal- uh, Calc, Backer and, and Long, uh, a huge aid climb that goes free and then all kinds of little things in between and, and really hard bouldering and just living that life and just passionately understanding that one, I was totally in love with Yosemite. Two, I was completely in love with climbing. And three, I was in love with my friends. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all I needed. That's all I wanted. That was it. I felt that anything beyond that, I, I had no need for. Mm-hmm. And uh, Were you aware of guys like Glenn Denny in terms of photography? Yes. Yeah. Because I've, I've always sort of connected you in that yeah. line. Like he was the... He's one of my mentors. Yeah, he was the guy for the golden person. age and yeah. all that and doing the same thing, you know, yeah. taking... Same with Glenn Denny and Tom Frost. Right. And those are the photographs that I more, more than likely did see growing up okay. in the magazines. Mm-hmm. And um, later in life, before I made my first book, I was around at, with Glenn when he made his first book. Okay. And so I was introduced to him through Dean Potter and through uh, the photo editor at Patagonia, Jane Se- Siebert. Okay, so and, quite a bit later. Yeah, quite yeah, a bit later. Okay. 
and since that point, he has become a mentor to me. Mm. On my 50s book, on my Stone Master book, he invites me into his home. I can look through boxes of photographs. So, I mean, that's a dream come true. Right. But so I was directly influenced by Glenn Danny. I was directly influenced by um, Tom Frost, an uh, English photographer named John Clear. They all shot black and white. They all made photographs of their friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's kind of what I was doing without thinking of that lineage. But I was definitely influenced mm-hmm. by that. I was making black and white photographs because I could, I could process them in my, my parents' bathroom at home at night. Right. You know, and then I could go and use someone, Sean's darkroom, and print them or wherever I needed to do. And I started getting jobs in the photo industry uh, working in darkrooms. Mm-hmm. And so on the weekends, I would go climbing with my friends. And then, you know, and I quit the jobs in the spring. And right. since I was skilled, I'd always get the job back. Uh, or another one doing the same thing. And, um, and so every weekend, I remember every Monday when I'd come back before I process customers film, I would process my own. Uh-huh. And I remember the sting on the gobies on my hands oh, when man. I put it into right. the hypo clear, which is basically salt water. I go, Oh yeah, right. damn it. Damn it. I got to get some better technique. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Because we didn't use tape. You're right? paying for it. Yeah, right I was there. paying for it and, <laughs> and everything. And then, uh, that next weekend, I would bring out the photographs uh-huh. and to show Backer or, right. or uh, Yabu or whoever, Michael Klinsky, all these guys uh, that were in the photographs, uh, and they dug it. And I've since seen photographs that Tom Frost took and both Glenn and Denny took where he, they're showing their own photographs to these guys back in the 50s, sure. right? And the guys are like, yeah, man, you know, it's like you're doing this for your friends, mm-hmm. but they dig it because you're doing it for some reason you're good at it right you're better than than the other ones at it Mm -hmm. and so i knew that's what i had to bring to the group because everybody brought something like mike ram was an inventor and and backer was a free soloist and tobin was a um uh, alpinist and john long was the writer you know so Mm -hmm. i became that kind of photographer right i think because i i felt like that's what i could do the best for the group with not no other thing that that when everybody saw the photographs they laughed or they Mm -hmm. loved them you Mm -hmm. know um, well, and if people aren't aware, it's like, it's like Glenn Denny, Tom Frost. I mean, most of those very iconic photos from the, from the golden age that you see over and over again, printed here and there, mm-hmm. you know, that's those guys. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and we've seen them all over yeah. and over and over yeah. again. Um, that's, and it's basically, they, they've created our image mm-hmm. of what that world was like. For, right you know, right or wrong or without detail or whatever, but Mm -hmm. you can't think of Camp 4 and the Robin's Age without those pictures flashing through your brain. It's wild. I mean, they they created like a reality in a sense. Very much so. And I know that when I saw those images, and I was really much, very much aware of other photographers' work. Mm -hmm. Uh, I always went to museums. I always was looking at that stuff. And I could see what was good. And I could see that their work was really good. And I could see that their work captured my community which was mm-hmm. their community which was our community and i i know that it influenced the you know how i made my photographs mm-hmm. that you know this is you know wow you know he's just this guy is just he's just reading something in this photograph and this other guy's smoking over here and this other guy's doing something there and that's really cool it looks really cool and when i know when i i made my photographs i saw that in there right you know oh yeah backer's like goofing and this guy is not <laughs> goofing and this guy is completely out of it i can see it click Mm-hmm. I would make my photograph. Right. Um, and then I'd show the results amongst a little group. Mm-hmm. And I know early on that both John, John had tried to get some of the work published. And, I, and they actually used to have a photo contest for Climbing Magazine. Mm-hmm. And my work was always roundly rejected. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. And, uh, and, and the early soloing stuff, no one would print until the National Enquirer, which is the first magazine to print my work, printed some photos I took of John Backer soloing like bearded cabbage mm-hmm. which i made with john's camera i think and with the headline something like mountain, mountain climbs rock kind of you know it was kind of a banal thing good photograph kind of banal but i was kind of proud it wasn't a national yeah, i mean that's, inquirer right and so <laughs> it's a national publication right it yeah didn't have that it has name. the word national right it's got there, that yeah. right there so i was like didn't get paid for it i'm sure fucking whoever right. whoever backer i think <laughs> submitted it must have gotten right. something he owes me that right. um but otherwise, it was internal, all um, amongst our friends, mm-hmm. and, and just to, to do that. And I, and I thought, yeah, I should become a photographer. I, I like this. But I didn't know what... I, fi- I thought, some reason, magically, 
my photographs would start making money. Right, I didn't right. have an, you know, an idea. Of what it meant to be a what professional. It meant, and I was yeah. too busy climbing yeah. and really having fun and having fun with my friends and like doing Stone Master stuff where like you, you dine and dash, for instance. Mm-hmm. So one Easter, we'd all go up to the valley at Easter. That usually would be the start of the season. Uh, and there was uh, Mike Leklinski and Mari Gingery and um, John Backer and John Yablonski and a bunch of us were all hanging together. And every morning we would go to the Four Seasons restaurant and we usually would know the waitress because she's one of our girlfriends or whatever. And, and they would serve us. And uh, when it came to paying the check, everyone would give me the money. And from that money, I would leave a really fat tip. And then I would go up to the cast register when I saw that there was people in front of the cast register and hang out there, pocket the bill, ask for change back, and then add to the tip, and then walk out the other door, and everybody's already gone. And I did this every morning and every evening for a week, months. <laughs> uh, so we would do that kind of stuff. Um, there was the plane crash. Right. And uh, when, when the, the, the Lockheed Lodestar crashed into Merced Lake, and uh, somebody who was sleeping with someone's... Uh, daughter that was a ranger came up with the information and everyone went up there and got weed and i didn't get to the plane but i actually sold a lot of the weed and smoked a ton of the weed but uh and and bridwell was our kind of our mentor and everything was open you could chop if you could do whatever you had to do mm-hmm. to survive to get there and it was all petty nothing malicious just simple stuff and just i thought my life was always going to be that way and in some ways it still is <laughs> but uh but that's, you know, I, I, I felt huge moments of satisfaction, mm-hmm. I think, early on climbing and being in those areas and, and making that about my life. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, I went to school. No, we were in like 81. I went to school in Santa Barbara for photography, mm-hmm. Brooks Institute, which is a very technical school of commercial photography. Can I ask you a question yeah. uh, along those lines? Because we we always think of that era, you know, seventies, late seventies, right. early late seventies. Um, and interesting, like I just talked to to Max Jones and Mark Hughes, oh, right, right on, who yeah. were not it, not a Stone Masters, but they were there. They k- were definitely kicking there. Ass, yeah, they were kicking, kicking ass, ass with, yeah, for sure. But they also bailed. I mean, that was seventy nine. It yeah. was their last kind of real big season. So what what was sort of the sea change? in your opinion, that, that really marks that middle, late 70s as like you guys' own golden era um, as in terms to of that. So what happens is, I've noticed in Yosemite is, is every seven to ten years there's a generational shift. Mm-hmm. And just like from the guys in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, they grew up having to have a career. So you had a career, a family, that was your life, and then you climbed. The shift started really in the late 60s or, you know, until the 70s when we just wanted to climb. But uh, we were all getting into it when we were 15 and 16 years old. So by the time we were in our early 20s, or it would have been the late 70s or the early 80s, uh, you're in your uh, change. Mm -hmm. You might be going to school. You probably have a girlfriend. Then there wasn't a lot of women that climbed. Uh, you needed to have more money because now you have a car. Um, there is a lot of pressures on, on change. And I think really that's kind of what, what happens in climbing. And then it, within that 10 years, there's been these other young people that have got into it. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously they're standing on your shoulders, mm-hmm. but they're also younger and stronger than you. And so, and also as you, these guys age, they became more competitive and, because that's the only thing you had in climbing. There was no money. Right. So the only thing you can like do is compete. For I mean, prestige, yeah. Right. You have to push yourselves forward, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's And competition is what does that. It's flat out what does it. Um, and I think it's always driven climbing, mm-hmm. right? You not only want to be better yourself, but you want to better that guy, your friend. It's friendly, or sometimes it's not. But I think what, what happened then was... Uh, it was that there was a lot of younger climbers coming in. There was also a lot of Europeans coming over. Uh, early on, it was only English, and then it became yeah. German. Yeah, the Stefan uh, Lovax, he showed up Even before that, Wolfgang Gulich. Yeah, and Gulich. Gulich was, yeah. I, I was one of the first people that had met him. Mm-hmm. And I, I took him on a tour of the, the, the bouldering in Yosemite. It was Wolfgang, 
this other guy named Hans and I can't remember the other guy's name, Peter or something. I met him and, uh, I decided to sandbag him cause that's what you did back then. Right. So I took him on a I tour of the do. boulders and still do. Yeah. <laughs> I took him on a tour of the boulders in my tennis shoes and was sending all these really hard problems, mostly because I had them so dialed and also because I really wanted to impress these fuckers. Right. And, and then they try with shoes on and they couldn't get anywhere because they're used to working stuff, mm -hmm. but it's like stuff I had dialed, right? And there's no crash pads and it's highball. And so I'm kind of embarrassing him a little bit and I can see him looking at me. And then the very next day I'm going on my circuit again to Boulder and I come around the corner and on one of the higher things, there's Wolfgang with a, on a rope. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> and he's doing the problem and right. I just sort of hit a little bit and I watched and I was like, oh, he's doing the problem. But I'd never seen anyone ever top rope a boulder mm -hmm. that this wasn't done. Boulder's a boulder. No matter right. how high the boulder is, right. it's a boulder. Right. You don't use a rope on a boulder. You use a rope on a climb. Mm. So in that period of time, also back or like in what, 81, 82, um, went over the sport check, which was a German trade show. This is before we had any trade shows here. Mm -hmm. So they did have professional climbers and there was, uh, organizations there that provided money for climbers to climb and equip routes even then in the, in the early eighties and backer saw that that started to filter in uh, backer and Ron became a, a, you know, kind of more competitive with each other and kind of broke off from, from each other. Uh, and I think one of the things more telling things is really earlier in like at 76 or 77 when backer, well, first Cal went up and led every pitch on Astroman. Then Backer went up and let every pitch an Astroman. Now that's a statement, right? And if you notice, every professional climber since has had a lead every pitch. Mm -hmm. What about your partner? So what I saw what happening was in the late seventies. It was more about the individual and less about the team and the and the and the group, mm -hmm. right? Because during the group, we would do first ascents. We would do mass first ascents. You know, we somebody would lead the thing, and then twenty guys would follow it. It was all about the group mm -hmm. and, and nobody really cared about the credit. And, but then people started caring about the credit because, well, you're maturing, you need money. If you want to get money from climbing back then, it was sort of a gimmicky thing that you had to do. And they had to understand who you were. Right. And I think that's what was going on. And also backer, uh, started the solo a lot and that shift between a soloist and a climber. There's a, it's a, uh, there's a gulf in a way between the two and, and Ron, is a climber. He likes climbing on the rope. He likes pushing himself and moving and doing his thing. Backer wanted to be as pure as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's really, and he felt that he was a dancer. And so he was a soloist. So you had this, this shift, uh, in, in the late seventies into the early eighties with, with European ethics coming in and with, um, the stone masters going their own ways. Mike Graham was starting the company, Grimichi products. John long was going to school and, uh, working in a gas station in Las Vegas with Lynn Hill, um, who was working in Vegas, you know, trying to make a buck and they were climbing out there at, at red rocks. And, uh, people were moving to that stage where they expected more out of life or wanted more of life. Therefore you needed a job and a career and so on and so forth. And it just wasn't going to happen in climbing. Mm -hmm. Backer was, doing it uh after a while lynn was able to john was a writer you know and i made my photos but if you were a carpenter you weren't going to be there all the time right and if you whatever you were going to do you were going to be doing that and so this younger generation is going to filter in and and they're going to make their mark and i think the the 80s had a lot to do with wall climbing and um and the less about the free climbing Right. And so Yosemite kind of went into that for a, a, a kind of a really long time until like 94 when Lynn Hill ended up freeing the nose. And then it started a whole new thing, which yeah. ended up becoming the stone monkeys in, in some way, which we, we'll get to eventually. But, um, <laughs> in this wandering yes, let's settle in. thing going on So you on went here. to college. I interrupted. Oh, actually, uh, you know what? Yeah. I have one more interruption. Yeah. No, no problem. Um, about that era. Cause you, you've been talking about the girlfriends, um, it's sort of, it's definitely a man's, 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 man's world. Oh, very much so. Yeah. But there are, well, there were a couple ladies like Mari. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mari uh, Gingri. Mar and... Mari Gingri appears. Lynn appears at Lynn some Hill point. appears. I remember when she first appeared. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell the exact story, but she showed up. <laughs> Basically, she showed up with a friend right. and then she uh, probably had heard of John Long. 
And but she saw us immediately. Right. Like she showed up with a friend of Josh Tree. She'd been climbing a Josh Tree with relatives, and mm-hmm. and she had a, a boyfriend I think that knew us, tangentially. And so she showed he, up. He should have never introduced her. He should to have you guys. never. <laughs> what a stupid boyfriend! A silly boyfriend, because because <laughs> at that time John Long was at the height of his power. Right, right. And it didn't take long to persuade you know Lynn that John was uh, a really interesting person. But I do remember that particular weekend we would we were all into soloing, and and simul climbing, and we'd solo up something and get high, and then down climb it you know, as a group. Mm-hmm. And it was like five eight. Five nine. Some guys were doing harder, but whatever, you know, just as a evening thing after a whole day of running around soloing or doing new routes or whatever. And I remember we were all went up on the dog leg. I think we all may have soloed the dog leg out of Toshi's five eight. Really fun climb. And we all got this, this little alcove, and in this little alcove you can sort of walk on the small ledge around a corner to like a chimney, and then you down climb. But right in front of us there was this boulder, at the top of the alcove, kind of, and. And there was these holds on the boulder, and they were kind of marginal-looking holds. And the holds overhung the climb, so if you actually got on these holds, you would whistle down about 80 feet to the, to the ground, right? And I remember Long looked up there and remarked, huh, could be a route there, but those holds are kind of jingus. And Lynn had followed us up this climb. We hardly knew her. It's just She was with us, right? She immediately jumped on those holds. She's pulling up on them. And looking around, she looked really comfortable. She's like 16 years old, you know. It's like, and I immediately knew that this person was different. Mm-hmm. Like she was immediately like us, but but even more so, <laughs> right? Because just like looking at her pull on those holds, you could see that there was something there that was really special. She um, must have been tiny. She was too. tiny, yeah. and she was a gymnast, and right. yeah, and, and she had absolutely no fear. And I'm not sure exactly what caused that, but, yeah. <laughs> but it worked to her advantage. And so she quickly became part of that group. And their group was kind of growing and absorbing more people. And like uh, Russ Walling, the fish and those guys, they had their own little group, but they were part of our group. And we kind of ruled Joshua Tree for sure. And it was basically an us and them kind of situation. Like us being the stone masters and our friends and them being people who climbed in helmets. Right. Which, you know, I mean, I have no issues right now, but back then they climbed with helmets. They climbed very slow and they had big boots, <laughs> you know, like very fat. <laughs> we boats. know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And so they were them and we were us. And then every else, of course, was, was them because we were trying to just be this climbing revolutionary kind of thing. And we were in the Bruce Lee movies, you know, and, and the Warrior's Way and, and people like Yabu doing incredibly crazy things, you know, and just... Like I say, every weekend was something you really look forward to. Um, and then, the, of course, the spring and the summer is when you're going to lose your job and and just go to Yosemite and do your thing. And, and it, it was endless. And then I went to school um, in the 80s, photography school at Brooks. And they didn't really like me there very much because all my photos for all the assignments for somehow climbing photos. Mm-hmm. Like, take a portrait of your friend in his environment, his work environment, right? Yeah, that's easy enough. I'll take a picture of a climber with a 4 by 5 camera. I go, all right. So I put the camera on the ledge, tilted it over, had my friend soloing up to me, take the photo. I mean, and they were complaining about it. And, and I was working there as a janitor at night to make ends meet. And uh, eventually uh, they fired me from the janitor's job. I think part of the reason was uh, I was using a darkroom in after hours. And that's right. Anyway, they fired me. And basically they kicked me out of school. And uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I continued to make climbing photographs and uh, I had met a, a woman in school. We went to New York and I was in New York for about four or five years, you know, about four years. I went to Europe for a couple of years as a photographer. First I was making photographs of still life, like blenders, toasters, uh, lawnmowers for catalogs. That's silly sort of things on white you know, seamless paper. And then I went into making photographs of, of, uh, of fashion photographs, women and, uh, Moved to Milan for like a year or so and made fashion photographs there. And um, then I moved back to the States. And by that point, the 80s was kind of uh, well-established as far as the whole sport bolting war kind of thing that had gone on with the whole ethical wars. had You know, it was kind of inflamed, but they kind of figured it out. And, and whatever hybrid we have now is what ended up being. But that was kind of the end of, of my era. Mm-hmm. which would have been like by the mid to the late 80s. It was done with 
the concept of climbing with a partner, putting in the gear, taking out the gear, having this one-off adventure, hippie John Muir, right, wasn't completely replaced at all, right. But it was gone in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. and it was gone, and that's why the reason is that's why the numbers in climbing have increased. So the difficulty was favored over the risk, but we enjoyed the risk because that was part of our adventure. But the difficulty is part of someone else's adventure now. And, you know, uh, as, as I've aged, I, I, I've strived and struggled to remain open. And as an artist, if you don't remain open, you will not make new work. And your, your work that you are making will have no joy in it because you're a closed person. So I don't exactly embrace everything and every change, but I, I'm completely open to people who do. And I can't judge anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because I never stopped my work in climbing and and who i've worked with uh, i met sharma i think when he was 16 years old so most of this this happened through um charles cole and charles cole was one of the stone masters tangentially but he was there a little bit later in the 70s mm-hmm. and he hung out with us and i and and i love charles we got along really well charles didn't take drugs he didn't drink but we would take acid all of us backer and everyone yabo we take acid out of josh tree wander around in the desert soloing and babbling and charles cole would be right along with us wandering soloing and babbling but, he had but but, but completely sober. sober yeah but he <laughs> that's a that's an art <laughs> yeah I, I believe so too and he was able to hang with us. that he can hang out with yeah. people on acid and like, not be just like completely annoyed six is an art yeah soloing on acid and you're yeah. not annoyed and i mean soloing on acid is fine i remember doing this this thing where both michael michael klinsky did it first and then backer does it so you don't know how hard it is, right? right? Yeah, well, yeah. the Normacast does not officially endorse soloing on acid. <laughs> okay. So. No, I'm just joking. We don't yeah. care. Dude, go um, for it. Have okay. a good time. So, <laughs> so you don't know how hard the thing is right. when those two guys do it, because they're going to do everything perfectly, right? Mm. Plus, you're on acid, so you just really don't know anything. So I remember getting on the thing after those, and they were on top, and they were staring down at me, like staring like, with that acid stare. And I was getting a little self-conscious, and halfway up this this probably easy five nine or five ten hand crack uh I, I had crossed up my my sequence and i knew it was crossed up and i'm trying to figure it out because i'm really frying at this point and i remember looking up and looking right into michael klinsky's eyes and backer's eyes and they look back at me and they go you're fucking up i go i know and they go well you better not fuck up here I go, no, and they go, no. And so I climbed to the top. I mean, that was pretty much simple, but it was like, just you were, I was experiencing life. I was an artist mm-hmm. amongst my friends living this life. Uh, I went to the school. I went to New York. I came back after Europe and, and was still doing commercial work, but I was not getting any joy from it at all. None, zero. I was struggling to get money. I was making photographs of music, uh, making videos. Uh, this would have been the early nineties. And, um, one day, Lynn Hill calls me out of the blue and uh, said, you know, you, you need to make climbing photographs again because I think that you have something to offer to climbing that climbing is is lost. And I was like, well, what's that? She goes, I don't know, but I, that's what I feel. I feel like you have this as an artist. Maybe you should approach it as an artist. And, and I was, like I say, I was really unhappy chasing money and making photographs for money. Making photographs for money actually stressed the hell out of me, and I didn't want to do that. Um, at all. And, uh, and, and, and the people I was working with, you know, when you grow up in this climbing community, like I did, you trust that other person with your life when they're on the other end of the rope or they're spotting you, or, you know, if you get hurt someplace, they're going to do their damnedest to get you out of there at their own expense or whatever. But, you know, you're working in music industry or stuff. You don't, those guys, they don't even know how to get you out of anywhere, you know? Um, and so I just decided, yeah, I think you're right. I, I went back and um, the, one of the first things I did was probably almost at the same time. In fact, John Backer called me and said, do you want to make some photographs for Boreal, my boot company? I said, sure. And because I'd make some photographs for Gramici products very early on when they first introduced the fee raise, like studio stuff. And the stuff that Backer wanted to do was um, more artistic. And he knew I was an artist. Backer always supported me as an artist. Um, we had many, many climbs together and. He, he, he told me once, he goes, you know, the one thing I really want to do in my life is be a really, really, really good climber. I want to be the best climber there is. I want to be as good as I can possibly be. 
goes, don't you feel that way about photography? And, you know, I was young and I said, yeah, oh, hell yeah, I do. You know, and, and Backer, he remembered that. And since I'd made photos growing up of him, he was really into my aesthetic. And my aesthetic was the same as Glenn Danny's and Tom Frost and John Clear and all those other guys. Uh, of the way you looked at climbing as an adventure and a risk and a, an aesthetic thing. And the right body position and the right everything and the right light. It meant everything. And you could get that. And and I, I got that with Backer and with all my friends. And, and you know, so... Um, when it came time when Backer was now a, you know, a business guy and he was uh, uh, developing boots and designing boots and, and rubber and stuff like that, he, he said, yeah, would you make some photos? And so what I did was made some photos of these athletes that they sponsored with probably boots and maybe not money at that point. But um, and what I would do is I make uh, it was called cubism. It, it was like basically I would make three or four photos of the same person from a bunch of different angles and I'd stick all the photos together. And it came, you know, so you'd see these four separate photos overlaid. So it showed you four different aspects of the same thing. And they were kind of climbing related. They were hanging out. I don't know. There were various things that I'd done. And they kind of, kind of got noticed. And Boreal liked them a lot. And at the same time, Charles Cole, who was always the competitor at 510, really liked the ads quite a bit. And Charles is one of those guys, and he knew me well enough. He goes, well, you know, he's a photographer. He's a professional. If you like that photographer's stuff and you want to just hire the photographer. So he approached me, and so I made some photos, and, and Boreal got a little pissed off and wouldn't hire me back. But, but I made some other photos that were studio stuff of women athletes that he was sponsoring, doing pull-ups, um, curling weights, you know, Rebecca. I remember those. That's where I met ads. Rebecca Rush, yeah, in fact, yeah. um, who would later become my first stone nude. And then we'd, that's about the time where I would have met you. Yeah. As that's well. when you would have yeah, met me as well. Yeah. And so, and, um, so I'm making these photographs and at the same time, Charles, you know, he, he goes, you know, you would be world famous right now if you had like an agent or, you know, if you just, you know, it was, I go, whatever, you know, I don't care. I just like making photographs. You know, I tried making photographs for money and I don't like it. Like I'll take your money. <laughs> but, but I like making these photographs, right. you know, and you let me do what I want to do. And and so he actually turned me on to, to Sharma. And actually, Lenny, Lynn Hill took me to Europe because she was working at the North Face at that time. And I was rolling video of Lynn and making some stills. And we ran into Sharma. And I got along with Chris really, really well. He was 16 at the time. And uh, he was working with Jim Thornburg at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I think they had maybe a slight falling out or a scheduling thing. And Jim left and Chris said, Hey, you want to hang out with us? And you know, I'm not, I'm not Jim Thornburg. Jim is an amazing photographer. I think he's way more talented than anything I can do, especially with climbing. And he's like super industrious, has all this energy. Like all the really top end guys have all this amazing energy nowadays, you know, like Jimmy Chin and Mikey Schaefer and, and even Greg Epperson, like, you know, who changed climbing photography. They have all this energy and, and all this focus on climbing. And I focus on kind of everything else and enjoying my life and being with my friends. And I, and they do too, but my focus is a little bit more high. And, uh, but Chris and I got along really well. We got along really well because yeah, I made photos of him climbing and I made photos of him getting high and, and, and I didn't judge. And he was from Santa Cruz and I was living in Santa Cruz at that point, uh, at my sister's. So we started hanging out and I had a car and Chris didn't, you know, it was just kind of <laughs> like my start. And I, I saw that so clearly and I go and he goes, Hey, you know, I was living at uh, between Santa Cruz and um, Joshua Tree and Yosemite. And so I would take Chris to Yosemite and back. And then uh, he was getting noticed. Um, Charles was kind of paying me to take photos of Chris and hang out. And I kind of liked it. And um, one day we're in Yosemite. He's over at the Battle of the Bulge. And he jumps. Uh, he falls off the problem because he's just playing with it. And he blows out his knee. And I carried him to the car because he didn't want SAR. And we took him to the hospital and it ends up he had an ACL and it was kind of a really dark period for Chris's life. But at that point I was living in Josh and he used to fly down there and I pick him up in Ontario and he would hang out at the Gordon ranch and we'd go into the park when he was rehabbing it and have various kinds of trips. Chris, Chris Sharma. Yeah. Chris Sharma. Holy cow. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I mean, the lost was, era. Yeah. It's like when Jesus disappeared for a while. Yeah, Jesus disappeared. And, and <laughs> it's they like found, the unaccounted for years. He was, they thought he was in India, but it turns out Charmer was actually in my bedroom um, hanging out and you know, getting high with all of us and, uh, and looking at things differently and making art and um, with us. And I could see he was really kind of like uh, one of these. He was amazing. I could see he was an artist. I can see he was the, the distillation of 
of a generation or two of climbing, and he was a natural, mm-hmm. almost like Lenny. You know, Lenny's also a natural. These people just are meant to climb. Like Alex Honnold is a natural, yeah. um, and uh, and I do remember also. So when I got back, you know, into making climbing photos, I decided to hang out in Yosemite, and I just as soon as I got back into Yosemite, I'd been going back and forth here. But as soon as I actually made a commitment to actually hang out in Yosemite now and make my photos here, because there was up and climbing climbers, Dean Potter, mm-hmm. there was something going on in the valley at that point. Mm-hmm. And Charles could feel it. And he said, go up there, make photos, I'll give you money. You know, you make some photos, I'll give you 500 here and there. You can make enough. I'll give you boots, whatever. And so I ended up showing up there and I met Potter pretty quickly. And I had this kinship, not because we had the first name, Dean, but because <laughs> he had this certain wildness and I could feel this wildness happening and these guys on SAR, they were all really good climbers and they were all, you know, there was Cedar Wright, there was a bunch of guys, you know, um, and, and this energy was happening and the Rangers were chasing everyone around kind of like in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was shoplifting from the store and out of bounds camping and dope smoking and, and, um, amazing women. And this was all going on. So this would have probably been in the late nineties, um, for sure. And as soon as I came back to Yosemite, I go, I don't want to leave. I want to figure something out. And I was still making my photos, but there's a lot of competition, you know, and, and for, and, and people were focusing more on the climbing action photo color. Right. You know, and, and that's not what I was making. Um, can I yeah. put a little point in here? Right. That right in there, you did a, do you remember doing the like little exhibit at rock? Creation? Yes. Yeah. And that triggered. Yeah. I mean, it was, the, I remember yeah. the, and that was the because same of Rebecca. Way. Yeah. Because it was, uh, you know, I have my, I've always had an interest in the history mm-hmm. and I had plenty then as well. Um, but I just remember, uh, Bruce Anderson was yeah. there and I, and, uh, yeah, I think I, I should get into that a little bit because Rebecca it, was an, is an amazing woman, Rebecca Rush. Uh, she's an amazing person. And so I made these photos of her. She was, I think, manager of recreation at mm-hmm. that point. And yeah. she, she invited me to come to recreation and use the facilities, you know, and, and she basically saw to it that I could use them for free. And, uh, so I'd been bouldering there for a while and not that long actually. And she knew of my history and, and I knew she knew I had these photos of the stone masters and she suggested I have an exhibit mm-hmm. in, in there. And so I, I printed up a bunch of them and we had this, that was fun. It was fun. I, I mean, to, to describe it, it was, you know, we turned the gym into, oh, a into a little gallery and the, and the, fo- the photos, photos were from hanging holds. from the holds yeah. and it was an evening yeah. and people were drinking wine yeah, and it was nice. like it wasn't a climbing evening others, yeah. it was like an evening and it was about yeah. that generation yeah. of climbers totally. and, our, and our little history and, I, and and then they put the photos up along the, the top of the gym after that as I remembered but um, and it made me really really happy it was the first time I'd ever really exhibited the work I, I know that I tried to actually exhibit that work several other times, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people just turned it away mm-hmm. out of hand. No, I mean, I, I'm literally like getting goosebumps remembering yeah. the the feeling I had looking at those photos. Yeah, a lot of them had even, have never been printed. Right, and they yeah. were. I mean, now some of them are again. They're in the in the zeitgeist because they, yeah. you know, some of them have backer and stuff like yeah, that. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it, yeah. So I totally was, remember just being yeah. like, "Whoa, this is out. This is." Where, how have these been like hidden from us? It was kind of like my <laughs> nobody had seen them, and, yeah. <laughs> and um, and and what so and I'll get to that at some point because that was the first time they'd really been seen publicly and the first time I had printed a bunch of these things. And it was really at that time, and actually before that, I had decided that I wanted to make a book. And uh, I didn't know what the book was going to be, but I thought the Stone Masters could be a good one. And I remember, um, getting a hold of John Long and, and asking him about it. And he didn't think that would be a good idea. And I thought, okay, well, I, I still want to make this book and, uh, I'm making these climbing photos, but these, this art, like the, these old photos, they really touched this chord in, in me. And I, and I thought, you know, that's your best work. And, and you made the work for the pure joy of, of making work. And then you tried to do fashion or you did fashion or whatever and music, but, but there was no joy and you were chasing money, and then you went back to climbing these climbing photos and, and making portraits of people, and you know, like, and, and you're happy with that, but, but now you're, start, you're chasing money again, you know, for your work. And I, I, I don't want to do that. And, and, um, and I thought, you know, 
what do you really want to do? And I thought, I don't know. I go, what do you really like? And I go, I think it was really high and I may have been eating a Reese's peanut butter cup. And I thought about it for a second. I go, it's peanut butter and chocolate. I go, nude, rock climbing. All right, part one of Teen Fight Elman. Part two coming up may already be in your feed, likely is already in your feed. So let's just get out of here and get to part two of the Enormous Cast with Dean Fidelman. But if you do happen to climb between part one and part two, you find yourself out there, of course, check your knot. decided that the cover is sexist. Well, so what? Yes. But what's wrong with being sexy? I mean, there's no... Sexist. Sex. 